All right, we're going to be in Acts. Um, I've been asked this question like, you want to write a book sometime? I thought if I wrote a book, I would title it Ordinary. Because that seems to be the kind of person God uses. But the problem with us is we always look backwards at people God has used, right? So I'll give you an example. Um, Billy Graham. Who's heard of Billy Graham? The Billy Graham, right? Yeah, pretty, pretty amazing guy. Um, but did you know when Billy Graham first started, there was this young lady who was in the audience and she was a missionary daughter and Billy Graham is preaching and she said she had to fight the whole time this urge in her to get up and run out. And when she was asked why, her answer was because it was such appalling preaching. That's Billy Graham. That young lady, her name is Ruth. <laughs> and her mother told her when Billy Graham and her start dating, her mom told her, do not marry Billy Graham. He'll never amount to anything. <laughs> you gotta love in-laws. Gotta love the in-laws. He is a loser. Don't marry that guy, right? Now, we're 70 years from that event and we look back and we're like, man, he is brilliant. But in the moment, nah, God will never use that guy. Don't marry him. What I love about Acts, and we're gonna read some brilliant guys and gals, is we get the backstory on them. It's called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you read the gospel accounts of the apostles, what do you think of them? Don't marry that guy. He will never amount to anything, right? That's what you see. And yet what happens with them is Jesus changes them into the kind of people that he can use. In fact, if all you had was the book of Acts, you can see the same idea. Who in the book of Acts is the one person you say, ah, oh, that guy will never believe? Saul, right? Who becomes the greatest missionary the world has ever known. So you even see it in this book. I love it, right? So the author of Acts is this guy named Luke. He's a doctor because Paul needs a doctor because wherever he goes, it's either a revival or a riot and sometimes it's both. So Dr. Luke stitches him up and sends him back in the ring. Okay, dude, you're good. Go back and preach again. So he just needs, he needs a doctor all the time. And I love the fact that he's a doctor because there is this idea around Christianity that the early believers were the uneducated idiots. They're the only ones that would believe this account. That's far from the truth. If you actually study where Christianity takes root in the first 350 years, it's in the cities. It's with the educated people. It's always in the cities. And then actually it moves out. Look at what Paul does. He doesn't go to the urban areas. He's going to the cities. I want to go to Rome. I want to go to Athens. I want to go to Corinth. I want to go to Ephesus. The big major centers of earth. That's where he first brought the gospels. Those areas that believe first. And it spread out from there to the countryside and to the uneducated. And we will see statesmen and leaders get saved throughout the book of Acts. Now there is one kind of Funny thing about Acts, um, it is shorter in words than Luke. Um, and when you wrote something, you would buy a scroll. And the scrolls came in like standard lengths. So Luke is a 30 feet long scroll. Axes would have been put on a 30 feet long scroll. 
but it's shorter. And so there's been this controversy now for a long time. Why doesn't Luke include more information about what happens to Paul, his beheading in AD 64? What happens to Jerusalem, its destruction? Why doesn't Luke include that stuff? So he would have left some length on the end of the scroll that should have been, could have been filled up. Now they say that because they think Luke wrote after Paul gets beheaded, after Jerusalem gets destroyed. So after 80, 70 at least. I just say, he wrote the book in about 80, 62. And this was all the history he had. That's why he's like, well, I'm done. Okay, roll it up, we're done. So to me, it's no controversy, but you might hear that, right? Brilliant book, let's jump in. We've done a lot of kind of work already, two Sundays, one Wednesday on this book. So we're good to go. Verse one, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So two Sundays ago, I did a message on this. You can get it if you want to. It's number one, what Jesus has done, part one, book of Luke. So the implanting of the life of Jesus in us. And then number two, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So really important stuff. So a couple loose ends on this. Jesus, crucified, buried, resurrected, has 40 days that he hangs out with his disciples. So he's got 40 days and that's it and he's gone. What he's gonna say and what he's gonna talk about is gonna be really important, right? He had three and a half years, he's got 40 days. So what does he, what does he do during that time? What tells us? Verse three, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering, beating, flogging, crucifixion, resurrection, by many proofs appearing to them during the 40 days. So the first thing is he was proving his resurrection because it's really important to believe that Jesus, after three days, walked out of the grave. There's this book by N.T. Wright. If you're into books that are a little bit thicker, he does a book on the resurrection about 10 years ago. Brilliant. And he had a point in there that I hadn't thought through very well. And he said this, if you look at when Jesus was crucified and you take like a 70 year window on either side, what you have during that period in history is all these supposed messiahs coming up, claiming to be the Jewish Messiah, getting killed and not in one instance do the followers that gathered around that Messiah say, he's alive. Not one of them. And so he said, why is that? And here's why. 
He said, number one, the Greek people, the Hellenists, those that were Greek of Jewish, Jewish born, but Greek thinking, they would have said, you're nuts, man. People don't walk out of a grave. The Jews would have said this. So I'll try to explain this like this. Um, I lived in Bonavatu for a year. When I was there, there was an island called Tana. On this island, there was a cult and it's known as the cargo cult. The John from cargo cult on Tana. And here's the story to that place. Uh, World War II, bunch of people are in this area. In fact, there were 250,000 US servicemen on the island that I lived on. So it was a massive base. So somehow someone from the United States gets in a sailboat and sails to Tana, this isolated island. Gets there, gets off, probably says, hey, my name is John and I am from Grants Pass, Oregon. Well, all they remember is John from. So they're like, hey, this is John from. And he gives them like sugar, stuff they had never eaten before, little trinkets. And they're like, wow, this is the best day ever. And when he leaves, he tells them this, hey, I'll be back, I'll bring some more stuff. So that was like in 42, 1942 or so. Well, here's what has happened to them since then. They run around and they dress up like they, John from dressed up in like army fatigues. They take like bottle caps and they make like their ribbons right here, their generals and they do stuff. And they carry an American flag around and they take the flag up to the top of the volcano and do this whole thing about American flags and stuff. And they will not send their kids to school. They will not build homes. They don't even like brush their teeth. They don't do anything. And here's why. They say, when John Frum returns, in 15 minutes, we will learn everything that has ever been known. He will give us mansions instantly. We'll have all the sugar stuff we want to eat and we'll have brand new teeth. So what they have built around John Frum is what I'll call a messianic package. That when this guy returns with him, we'll know it's John Frum because we'll know everything in 15 minutes. So I go to school, we'll have brand new teeth, we'll have mansions and we'll have the best stuff to eat. And so they're waiting to this day. They're still waiting on that island for John Frum to return. It's called the cargo cult, right? They're actually, sadly, a little bit too frequent in that area. So here's in the time of Jesus, that same thing had grown up around Messiah. So if you remember the last message I gave in Genesis was end of days, or you have this, this thing that happens in Genesis 49, where Jacob says in the end of days, there's going to come a king from the line of Judah. And he is going to bring prosperity, so much prosperity that you will tie your donkey to your choicest vine because you got plenty. And he's going to bring you health, right? first. And then that same term is used in Numbers 24 by Balaam. And there it's, hey, when this guy comes, he is going to kick all the evil out of the world. Oh, that's cool. And then it happens again, Deuteronomy 31 and 32, where there it tells us, and when he comes, your sins, your brokenness will be atoned for, right? So Jews took those ideas and they begin to form their messianic package. When Messiah comes, he's gonna bring us health. He'll bring us prosperity. 
He's gonna bring us freedom from oppression, from evil oppression. He's gonna atone for our sins. And then you add on what the Psalms does and you add on what the prophets add. So they had this whole, it's called their messianic package. So they believe when Messiah comes, he's gonna do all this stuff. Like the John Frum cult. So all the messiahs that claimed to be messiahs and were killed, the reason why they said, hey, he's alive, all the Jews would say, no, he's not. Because you know what? I don't have money right now. And when he comes, I'll have money. And you know what? Rome still got us under its thumb. So he hasn't vanquished our oppressor. And you know what? I have the flu right now. I'm not healthy, right? So that's why they would never say that. But Jesus and his followers, even though he doesn't fulfill their messianic package, they come out and say, he's alive. Now, why would they do that? The Greeks are like, you're nuts. The Jews are like, no way. But they're like, totally. The only reason why you would do that is if Jesus actually walked out of the grave. Because everyone's like, no, no, no. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. The only reason you would ever do something like that is if it's true. Jesus walked out of the grave and he proves it to 500. He proves it to these people. Proves it with proof after proof after proof. Thomas, a good monotheistic Jew who doubts Jesus's resurrection. Jesus appears, he feels the imprints. And then he says this, my Lord and my God. No raised monotheistic Jew is ever gonna call somebody God unless they know they're God, right? So you have these just proof after proof after proof. My favorite one on this is this writer named Anne Rice. So if you're a little bit older like me, who here has heard of Interview with a Vampire, right? Big movie, Tom Cruise is in it. I've never actually seen it. Um, I like Top Gun, but I never saw that movie. So uh, she makes millions, does what she wants to do. She's you know, independently wealthy. She goes, she gone to college, she became an atheist, doesn't believe anything, married an atheist, they're atheists. So she's just, she's got it made. She decided um, in the early 2000s, I'm gonna write a book on how Jesus, when he was young, went down to Egypt, studied black magic, learned all these tricks, brought, brought black magic up to Israel, uh, astounded people with his tricks, and that's how he became famous, right? That's not a book you're gonna buy at Evangel. You will not hear it advertised on the dove, right? It's, it's a book that would be saying Jesus is nothing. Well, she starts to study and starts to research. Midway through her research and studying, she believes that Jesus is divine and becomes a Christian. And her husband's like, hold on a second. Remember, we're atheists. We don't believe in Jesus. What's going on here? So there's this great interview. I think it's in 2006, maybe, in the Wall Street Journal. It's brilliant. And they were asking, they're like, what's up? What happened? And I'll, I'll just read an excerpt from this Wall Street Journal interview with her. She says this, quote, and this is in her research. Some books were no more than assumptions piled on assumptions. Conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. The whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified, that whole picture which had floated around in the liberal circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field 
some of the worst and most biased scholarship I've ever read, end quote. Because they don't want a divine Jesus, right? So Jesus proves to his crew, I'm alive. And one of the greatest proofs that I love is John 21, where he eats fish. Why do I like that? Because he's still human. Let's have a meal. Are we gonna eat food in eternity? Oh yeah, 100% man. You can eat ice cream without guilt. Eat the whole container and be like, I'm, in, I'm, I'm actually immortal, so it doesn't really matter. I'll eat the whole container and I won't put it in a bowl, right? That'll be me. So happy day that is, we'll eat fish if you want or ice cream. So that, that's the first thing he does. I'm going to prove because this is so important, the resurrection. Then number two, look what he talks about. Speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus could discuss a whole bunch of things, but the one thing that he seems to circle back to with his disciples in his 40 days of post-resurrection is the kingdom. You gotta know how important it is if that's what Jesus wants to talk about. So I am what's called uh, an adherent to inaugurated eschatology. It's a fancy word that just means Jesus began something that's gonna continue on. So when we talk about the kingdom, I say in AD 32, with the death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus, the kingdom started right then and there. It was planted, it began, and it's supposed to be growing from that point. It got launched, and now you and I get to participate in this same kingdom. And the kingdom that Jesus plants is in stark opposition to an existing kingdom. And that's why you have Colossians chapter one saying, these two kingdoms are clashing. There's a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. There's a kingdom of Jesus. And then there are these principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness that actually are aligned against this coming brilliant kingdom. And so you and me right now, what we're supposed to be is we're supposed to be an outpost of that kingdom that people should be able to look at our life and even look at the way that we do church and they should be able to say, oh, that looks like something. It should look like the coming kingdom, right? And this kingdom, Jesus says, runs on different fuel. This other kingdom runs on money and power and control and reputation and sex. It runs on that kind of fuel. But Jesus would say, this kingdom it runs on this kind of fuel. It's Matthew 20, 28. He says, I did not come, the king did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This kingdom, it runs on service and self-sacrifice. And they're so starkly opposed that if you actually lived this kind of kingdom, you would, you would disrupt the dark kingdom. That's what would happen. You'd be countercultural. You'd be crazy. It would throw it into chaos. It'd be like this. So um, my best example of just throwing something into chaos, I went to Thailand a long time ago. I uh, had a day off because it was the queen's birthday and uh, I rented a moped, but they drive on the wrong side of the road. So I just did this. I, I got behind somebody that I thought was going in my general direction and just followed them. 
right? And that worked great. I got kind of around, I was doing pretty good until there was this massive intersection and the guy I'm following took this hard, hard left and then I'm trying to go out straight. So I'm like, oh, I can do this. But right as I turn, I just go into American mode. And then I come face to face with, if you've ever been in a third world country, all the mopeds get in front, right? They like weave through everybody. And then, and then I just, this cloud of mopeds are coming towards me. And then it's like semis and trucks. I'm like, ah, and there was screaming. And I didn't need to know Thai to know what they were trying to say to me, right? It was very apparent what they're trying to say to me. It just threw everything in chaos, honking horns. I'm scared. Okay, that's what our life should be. That we should be causing so much like, how, you do what? You help that person? You, you gave to that? Look, this happened to you and you're still smiling? That, that's, we should, our lives should be in this constant clash with this other kingdom that lives by these other rules. And it only happens when we serve and we say, you know what? I'll sacrifice my life for you. That's when this kingdom, that's when it gets taken out, right? So what I love when I think about these two kingdoms is when somebody finally gets to the top of this kingdom, right? We're all trying to build a fiefdom of some sort. And every once in a while, there'll be a talented individual that will get up the money, power, control, sex kingdom, and they'll get on the top. And I love to read how they feel when they finally arrive because it's always the same. Madonna probably is the best example. She is arguably the greatest female singer ever, right? She's, she's made a billion dollars. To just compare her, Taylor Swift is 170 million. So she's, she's in a category by herself. There's a Vanity Fair article where they interview her and they're talking about everything that she's done platinum albums and breaking this thing and doing that thing and just all these glass ceilings that she shattered and Emmys and what, what do is it Grammys? Who gets an Emmy? I get an Emmy, all right? <laughs> Whatever, Grammys, she, she's got it all, right? She's just everything. And they're like, man, you must just be stoked. You're at the top of the heat, man. You, you climbed it. When, it, when we talk about money and fame and power and reputation, you're at the top of this kingdom. This is her answer. It makes me happy for one minute and then I need more. How good is that? I have got up higher than anyone has ever got and it makes me happy for one minute and then I just need more. And we can point at the lassie, that was whatever. But we do the same thing, don't we? Try to find a car, a used car. Go on Craigslist. You know, I want to get a car for $2,500. So you put in $2,500. And then what happens? You're like, man, I don't like any of those cars for $2,500. What can you get for three grand? Oh, what can you get for four grand? You end up at a dealership with a thousand dollar a month payment. You're like, how'd that happen? You want to climb to the top of your little fiefdom. Like we all do it, right? They're just a bigger, they're a bigger fiefdom, but we all do the same thing. Here's why. The capacity of the human is too great. The capacity of this kingdom right here will never, ever, ever be able to fill how God has designed you and me. It never can. It's absolutely impossible. You talk to every person who's finally scaled the heights and they'll all say the same thing. I just need more. Why? Because your capacity is too 
great. And then, then those that do get to the top and maybe they have a little bit of satisfaction, then they'll be like, man, I'm getting old. I'm getting wrinkles. I'm getting gray, right? It hurts to wake up in the morning, like morning, ow! You ever feel that way? Like, oh, ow, ow, that hurts. Why? Because you're winding down. So right when you, right when you feel like, I got this thing, I got the world by the tail. Ah, oh, you're dead. Sorry, right? You're painted up like a clown, put in a box and it's over. So all these things, kingdom addresses destiny, purpose, design, the actual things that matter. So Jesus is saying, I'm gonna tell you about the kingdom. So in Luke 24, when Jesus walks with those disciples to the road to Emmaus, I think he's talking kingdom to them. And that's why they say, man, did not our heart burn within us? When I talk with young people about kingdom stuff, man, hearts burn. They're like, yes, that resonates. I can feel that, yes, because that's what we're designed. We are designed for kingdom, right? Genesis chapter one says what? You're to rule and to reign with me. You're to be a king. You're to be a queen. That's what our design is. And obviously this kingdom can never do that. Only his kingdom. So Jesus with these guys, kingdom. It's about kingdom guys, about kingdom. Brilliant. Sometime I'm going to do a Genesis 1, Revelation 20 kingdom study, but not tonight. So that's what he tells them. Resurrection and kingdom. So verse six. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So on the day of Jesus's ascension, he talks about two, possibly the biggest, most controversial issues in church, right? Eschatology and the Holy Spirit, right? Are there two bigger? I don't know, right? Like to this day, we still pay, play what I call pin the tail on the Antichrist. Who's the Antichrist, right? It's the Pope. No, it's not the Pope. It's Hitler. No, it's not Hitler. It's um, Obama, right? Obama's the bad guy. He's gotta be the Antichrist, right? We're always like, you know, this crazy kind of way that we're always like making somebody, it's Genghis Khan, it's Caligula, it's Nero. It's been happening for 2000 years. So he hits that one. And then the Holy Spirit how divided and fractured is the church today over how the Holy Spirit works. And entire denominations, the Pentecostals, Charismatics, Vineyard left, Calvary Chapel, why? Because they said, you know what? We want a different view of the Holy Spirit. How, do, I mean, he's talking about the two biggest things. 
So if you wanna know about these subjects, you should really think about what did Jesus say right before he left on these two massive subjects. In verse six to me, there's this like getting down on the disciples. I'm not at all. When they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You know what that tells me? They read their Bibles. They're reading Isaiah 65. They're reading Ezekiel 36. They're reading, they were Bible students. They knew they had the messianic package in their mind. They're like, hey, you are God, you're Messiah. So with that comes all this stuff. And so Jesus does not rebuke them. I think they asked a really brilliant question. And Jesus's answer to them is awesome. He says, listen, the kingdom I'm talking about is not about the end of the age. The kingdom I'm talking about is taking the message to the ends of the world. That's what I'm talking about. That it's not about, hey, this thing's just closing down and we're starting something else. No, this is about getting this good news out to people. And when it comes to the time when things are to end, only God has the chart. Only God does. Not some guy on the radio, not some guy on TBN, only God has the chart. That's what Jesus says. And I tend to trust Jesus. So I look out for people to charts. And what he really says is eschatology is a second tier issue. What is primary is you being my witnesses. That's primary. And we can talk about eschatology and I love that and I have my thoughts on it. But you know what? If you really wanna get my heart burning, it's the rest of what Jesus says. And I think if you're from my kind of church, when you hear about witnessing, there's probably a little part of you that's like, oh, I do not wanna do that. I don't wanna go cold calling, knocking on people's door, having them answer the door and be like, um, do you know Jesus? No, do you wanna know Jesus? No, okay. Thank you. I don't want to do that. I don't want to witness because I think our, our minds are wrapped around a crew of people that do that to this day, right? They show up at your door and then they ask you questions about Jesus. We call them Jehovah's Witnesses, right? And so you always know when they're showing up because they get out of the car in like the 1980s suit. You're like, man, is that like, is that like the suit they offer you guys or what? And then they're always nice. They're always super kind. Um, I'm finally blacklisted, I think, from the Jehovah's Witness line, and I don't mind that. But it happened a couple of years ago. They, they came, I wasn't there. They talked to my daughters. My daughters are like, um, could you come back when our dad is here? <laughs> They're like, when will your dad be here? Saturday. So on a Saturday, I'm out there. I'm like trying to dig a hole, and they show up, and I can just see, oh, no. And so I, I've been trying to hide. I did not want to have this conversation. I'm skinny. I thought, maybe they won't see me about the shovel handle. <laughs> right? No. And the guy got, I was, he, was such a, he was such a nice guy. He's like, hello, friend. I'm like, wow, okay. We'll see about that when we're done with this conversation. <laughs> and so it, it was like an hour and a half long. And I'm like, oh man, I'm just like, I just want to dig a hole right now. And, it, and we ended up getting on. He's like, well, what, what's, what's your struggle? I never told him what I did. I didn't tell him any of those things. And I said, well, my main struggle is, is Jesus. You guys are anti-Trinitarian. You don't believe in the Trinity. 
and you don't believe in the divinity of Jesus. And I said, well, why is that? So they had the New World Translation, which is their translation. And they're like, oh, here's why. And so they opened up to John chapter one, verse one. It says this, in the New World Translation, in the beginning was the word, and the word was a God. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I said, do you know that your translation alone, out of the hundreds of English translations and the thousands of translations across the world, your translation alone inserts A in there? I'm like, yes, we do. I said, oh, that's interesting. And, and you're, you're now basing a huge doctrine on this one difference in your translation. So if it's, if it's that important of a verse, you guys must know why you insert an A in there, right? You must know the Greek why you insert an A in there. So I'm just wondering why you do that. And they're like, well, um, actually we don't know why we put it in there. I'm like, really? Here's what was so crazy. I had just finished a paper, a Greek paper on John 1, 1 through 3. So I was like, let me tell you. <laughs> you picked the wrong text, my friend. <laughs> so I'm like, there, it, it, the, the Greek there is emi and it's emi theos. There's no, there's no article in there. It's emi theos, that's it. And I said, now there is a fraction of a fraction of a percent of a reason why you might want to put an A in there. But I said, context always drives language. If you don't know the grammar and you don't know the context, you cannot just take a word. So I said, so if my daughter, I'll give you a, a, a way to understand this. If my daughter went on a date with a guy named Bill and she comes back and I ask her, sweetie, how was your date with Bill? And she says, Bill was a dog. I will not then say, oh, oh, is he a golden retriever? <laughs> Schnauzer. Poodle? What, what, what? No, right? I understand the term dog by the context of the conversation. So I said, so I'll give you a, you know, no translation does it, but I'll give you a tiny fraction of a tiny, tiny, okay, 0.01% reason to put an A in there. But I said, but you can't, and no translation does it because of context. Because you just read verse three, and it says that without him, nothing was made, and he made everything that is made. What did that just say? He's not made. Everything that was created was created by this a God. But what does that make a God? God. And they just looked at me, they said, um, we don't meet people like you very often. <laughs> and they've never been back. <laughs> right? So in our minds, when we think about witnessing, there is this idea, I'm gonna show up to some guy's house like Matt and it's just gonna be, he's gonna be an atheist and he's gonna tear me apart and I don't wanna do that. I don't wanna knock door to door. I don't wanna go witnessing. But it doesn't say that, does it? What does it actually say? You will be my witnesses. Here's what he's saying. You know what a witness is? Someone that has seen something so incredible, they can't stop talking about it. That's what a witness is. I've seen something that's so awesome, I've got to tell you about it, right? There are witnesses of all kinds of things. The diets, like I'm on this diet where I only eat potato chips and bacon and I'm losing weight. Bro, you got to listen to me, right? I, I have this new car. I have this new job. I'm at this sports. I'm doing, you know, CrossFit. They're great evangelists, man. 
You get a crossword person, they will get you in that place, right? So there's all kinds of like witnesses because something's happened to them. Something's happened to them. So being a witness for Jesus just means I found him so compelling. I can't help but talk about him. That's what a witness is. He's so compelling. So it might be a little bit like this. Today, uh, Charity and I had to go to a court meeting for the two foster care kids we have, Hunter and Harry. And um, it was termination of parental rights and a move to move the kids from here to Hawaii. So that all went through and everything. Um, we, I volunteered myself. I will take them to Hawaii. <laughs> I want to serve you and bless you. Jesus said, my mandate is self-sacrifice. So <laughs> I'm part of a different kingdom. I will serve that way, right? So I'm, I'm volunteering to do that with charity. Uh, we'll see, probably not. But they, they moved courtrooms. So everyone's kind of late and charity are in there sitting. And the judge, there's like a, a, kind of like this going on. He's like, okay, let's get ready. And then there was just like this silence. And I remember in that moment, I was like, I just want to pray. I just want to pray right now. And like, it was, the, it was the instinct of my brain to be like, let's invite Jesus into this thing. Like these kids need Jesus. We need to, but obviously I bit my tongue because that would be really awkward. Can I pray, sir? No, sit down. Okay. I just wanted to know. <laughs> but that's what it, the, what, it should be just like, oh, I just want Jesus involved in this because he's really smart and his wisdom would be really good. That's what a witness is. It's just, he's so compelling. I have to talk about him. That's a witness. That's what these guys did. We, we found Jesus so compelling. We can't keep our mouths shut. We don't have to go door to door. We just, everywhere we're at, a coffee shop, car, friends, neighbors, Jesus is so compelling. We gotta talk about him. What happens and what's happening today is this. We are being sidetracked by some good stuff. And the big sidetrack today to me, and it's super important and super good, is social justice. So today, people love the ethics of Jesus, right? They will co-opt Jesus for whatever program they have. They love his ethics, help the poor, bless people, serve, self-sacrifice, love that. But you know what they don't love? Jesus. Don't love his, him as Lord and as savior. And so too often what happens is we will, we will, you know, do the sex trafficking or drill wells or these things. Cause man, everyone loves that. We can all cheer that, no problem. But then we don't also declare he's the king who's brought a new kingdom. And you need to get out of that dark kingdom and get into this new kingdom. And all we did was just, all we did was kick the can down the road a little bit for them because they'll go right back to the junk and their lives will not be transformed and they won't be truly saved. So we have to be careful and guard ourselves. Yeah, yeah, we love the ethic of Jesus, but we love him as king too. He's Lord and king and divine. That's a witness, right? So man, one, one more quick point so I can finish this little paragraph. Jesus um, says, you're gonna be filled with the Holy Spirit and that's gonna make you a witness. So I think sometimes we forget that to be a witness of Jesus is an absolute supernatural event. You can make yourself a doctor, you can make yourself a dentist, you can make yourself an engineer, you can make yourself a Republican, you can make yourself a Democrat, you can make yourself a Libertarian, you can make yourself whatever. You cannot make yourself a witness. Do you know that? You have to wait here. Why? 
because you need the spirit. You need God's spirit. That's what you need, right? So when we talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, we're gonna hit a bunch in this book. I know there's always a group that cringes, like, ah, uh, right? Like it gets weird. And the reason is because there are some things like snake handlers and poison drinkers. And there, there is a weird component where you're like, that's weird. But, but I just think this, that, that people, Christians that are weird, were weird before they got saved. I mean, honestly, I just think that's the way it is. And they're just, okay. They're just, okay, you're going to be weird. All right, that's fine. Handle a snake, drink poison, right? I'm not doing that. So there's just, you just got to accept, okay, that's all right. Body is broad. Jesus loves them all, died for them all. No problem, right? But on the other side, I think we got to be, you got to be careful about something because we can have this fear. So when I rededicated my life to the Lord, um, went back to OSU, got into Campus Crusades right away because I knew I'm not gonna do this thing by myself. I need community. I need people around me. Um, their whole thing was link a young guy in with an older believer. Great, great mentoring. So the guy that I got linked with, Bill, from Texas, Straight Lace Baptist. So we sit down day number one, we're in this quad area or we're gonna say he's gonna buy me lunch. I'm like, sure, man, buy me lunch. That'd be awesome. So we're eating lunch and he's like, okay, Matt, um, uh, what do you want out of your Christianity? And I had just been devouring God's word, just like, oh, yes. And I said, I want book of Acts, man. I want book of Acts. And he's like, well, at Campus Crusades, um, we don't believe that Acts is for us today. I just looked at him and I said, why would you believe that, man? Why would you believe that? And I have a voice that carries, if you don't know. <laughs> My wife is always like, do you have a different, do you have a different volume? I'm like, no, I don't actually, sorry. It's this or nothing. So my mom told me growing up, you have a voice that carries. I'm like, okay. People like pop their head into the big pastor's office. and like, man, you guys are loud. I'm like, no, me, I'm loud. The rest of us are pretty good. I, it's my, I'm the problem. So. Anyways, my voice is kind of carrying. I'm like, yeah, I want books. You know, and this, this, like, it was the most classic event. This lady, she turns around. She's like a little ways away. She goes, hey, I'm a charismatic Catholic. We believe in acts. And just turns right back. I'm like, what do you think about that, Bill? All right, should I go a Catholic or what here? I mean, <laughs> it was so awesome. <laughs> it was just, okay. I called my mom that night. I'm like, man, school's so weird. And she's like 1960s, you know, liberals and burn stuff and humanists. And she's like, oh, I know, you know, the humanists. And, the, uh, and I'm like, no, the Christians, they're weird. <laughs> she's like, oh, okay, well, all right. Here's what I know. Jesus was never weird, right? He was never weird. He got accused of everything in the world. You're drunk, you're a liar, you're illegitimately born, right? He was accused of all that. He was never weird. No one was like, Jesus, you are weird, right? Nobody, because he wasn't. He was a full human, the way that you and I were actually designed to be. Remember creation. There's these acts of creation where God says, right? Let there be light and there's light, right? Let there be stars and there's stars. Let there be a sun and a moon and there's sun and moon. Let there be the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean. He just speaks these massive things into existence. Let there be giraffes and elephants and rhinoceroses and lions and tigers and bears. Let there be all crocodiles, right? 
platypus. Let it be all that. But then humans, what happens? He gets his hands dirty, right? Gets down, makes a blob of dirt. But then what does he do to that blob of dirt? He breathes into it. The word breath in the Hebrew, ruach, he ruachs into it. Breath, wind, spirit. And when he breath, wind, spirit, ruachs into the dirt ball, what happens to it? It says it becomes a living soul, a nefesh. A living, it's the, the word living soul means it's nefesh. It becomes something, animated, empowered, right? So a full human is a dirt ball that has God's ruach. Amen. If you don't have God's ruach, you're just a dirt clod. That's all you are. I mean, literally, th- this idea like we, we, we think about the Holy Spirit like in New Testament terms, we, we're, we're like truncating massive amounts of God's spirit in the Old Testament to our own demise. So we think, well, you know, it's Pentecost. No, th- this is building on this foundation that's gone on forever and ever and ever. What sets us apart as full humans is we've been given God's Ruach. We're not dirt clods anymore. We're humans because that's what a full human is actually. All right. I said just one more thing, but I got to finish the ascension. So it just doesn't make sense that I don't. I'll be super fast. Um, Jesus sends up in the clouds, disappears. I took a class at Oregon State, Philosophy 390, just called Jesus. I thought I can get credit and learn about Jesus. And I didn't learn about Jesus at all in that class. In fact, I had my faith tore down. And the teacher, Marcus Borg, in this text right here, he mocked the Bible. It was just ridiculous. Like Jesus goes up in the clouds and he disappears. Wait, where'd he go? The stratosphere? Like we know too much now about the world to have an ascension. It's ridiculous. And I'm like, oh, it does seem ridiculous. Like, where did he go? And he's like, could he breathe? Did he have, you know, oxygen? I mean, yeah, so, right? So you just, I just was so belittled by this. But here's what Luke is actually doing. He's a biblical theologian. So when it says Jesus goes up to a cloud and the cloud took him out of their sight, what he's actually doing is he, he ties in to this big story of the Old Testament where Yahweh is referred to as the cloud rider. Did you know that was one of the terms for Yahweh? It's over and over in the Old Testament. Just look it up. Psalm 104 verse three, he rides the clouds, right? Isaiah 19.1, he rides the clouds, right? It's a term for him. It means he's on the clouds and he is overseeing everything on earth. He's on the clouds, he's a cloud rider. And then you have Daniel chapter seven that ties in the almighty and the son of man, this very, very important picture of Jesus. And guess what he comes on? The clouds. And then Jesus grabs the same term for himself in Matthew chapter 26, where he says, I'm gonna return on the clouds. I am the cloud rider. So what Luke is actually doing is saying, Jesus is the cloud rider of the Old Testament. He's God. It's Luke's way of tying in this biblical theology that you and I as 21st century Americans don't get because we're not steeped in the Old Testament and we don't have that Jewish idea. We miss it, but Luke is like, he's God, by the way. And he has right now returned to his rightful rule, overseeing, riding the clouds, watching 
what is happening here on earth, right? So where does he actually go? He goes back to his rightful place, right? The realm of God. So it's another dimension. If you're saying, what's another dimension? Talk to somebody that loves Star Trek, because I don't know exactly, right? It's, you know, there's dimensions and there's other, other things. But the heavens, we think heaven's like, okay, it's where the sun is and the moon and, and the stars. And that, that's not, the Bible doesn't use heavens that way. A lot of times when the Bible uses the word heavens, it just means the abode of God. So he went back to the abode of God where he belongs. And he's riding the clouds over seeing earth. So the next time you get Jesus, see him in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter seven, when Stephen gets stoned and where is he at? He's in the heavens, standing on the throne or by the throne. He's where he belongs, overseeing and watching his church and making sure it's done well as the cloud rider would. So I think that's what he's actually saying. And you and I can take comfort that Jesus is in his right spot on the throne, overseeing the church and not allowing the gates of hell to prevail against us, that we will be victorious. And that's how Acts ends. And we looked at that last week. We'll be victorious. Why? Because of our cloud rider. So I think that's what Luke is actually saying. So Jesus, we thank you for your Ruach, your spirit that transforms us from dirt clods into living souls, nefeshes, able to sense and to feel and to be your witnesses. So I ask this night, Lord, for your body here to be filled with your Ruach. That our hearts would sing with the joy of knowing you as our King, as our Savior, as our Lord, as our God, as the cloud rider that looks after us and watches over us on the throne to welcome us one day. May our hearts burn and sing with that. And may we be able to go from here, Lord, to homes and to neighborhoods. And may the way that we live serving and sacrificing disrupt the kingdom that's been in this town for too long. And I pray this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.